Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Drivers, start your engines! Hit the pace car! What for? Because you hit every other damn thing out there, I want you to be perfect! When I'm driving, I got a guy on the radio who talks to me. He talks to me. He didn't slam you, he didn't bump you, he didn't nudge you, he rubbed you. And rubbing son is racing. Hey, race fans, welcome to the Hoobazoo Radio Network and welcome to Drafting the Circuits. My name is Frank Santoroski. I'll be your host for the next hour as we go over the weekend in racing and preview next week. Before we do that, let me introduce you to the panel tonight. I have with me Mr. Seth Eggert from Motor Source Tribune, Joey Barnes from IndyCar.com, and displaced race engineer Richard Uden. How's everybody doing tonight? Very good, thank you. Doing good. <laughs> All right, good to talk to you guys. We also have, joining us on the panel, a uh, returning guest, a friend of the show, uh, our friend Mr. Brock Beard, um, the the owner and CEO of LastCar.info. Uh, we had Brock on the show uh, last year uh, where he was discussing um, the uh, biography of J.D. McDuffie that he was writing. That book is now published and available uh, you can find it on Amazon, Google Books, or through WaldorfPublishing.com. The book is called J.D., The Life and Death of a Forgotten NASCAR Legend. Um, and, you know, for um, you can go to uh, lastcar.info and get a lot of information about the book there. But uh, with no further ado, Brock, welcome to the show, man. Good to have you back on. How you been? Oh, been excellent. Excellent. Thank you for having me on. All right, yeah, fantastic. So let's knock out the headlines of the week real quick because it has been a pretty interesting week in racing. Uh, NASCAR was having a great weekend. Um, they had a sellout at Watkins Glen, which when you think about how many people they can, they can fit into that place is mind-boggling. They've sold that place out three years in a row. We had a very popular winner with uh, young Chase Elliott taking his first um, series win. Um, in grand fashion, and then, uh, you know, with all this great stuff going on, Monday comes out the news that uh, Brian France, CEO of NASCAR, ran into a little legal trouble with the cops up there in uh, Sag Harbor. So, um, you know, uh, pulled over, arrested, DUI, uh, prescription drugs in his pocket that he did not have a prescription for. Um, just a, kind of a black eye all around. Uh, the dude stepped down from his role. And we'll have to see how all that plays out, but uh, we're going to get into all that later within the hour. But first, Brock, let's talk about uh, this book you have written, J.D. McDuffie, um, one of the one of the last privateers in NASCAR. Not the last. I think uh, Dave Marcus outlasted him a little bit, but uh, he was doing things his own way on his own budget, bringing a bringing an old beat up truck to the track. Uh, when others had 18-wheelers and um, lost his life um, in 1991 at Watkins Glen, just prior to NASCAR booming so huge uh, that he would have loved to have seen it. So Now, Brock, you spent some time with um, J.D.'s friends, family, crew members. Um, you spent some time in uh, Sanford, North Carolina. So um, just kind of talk us through what uh, gave you the idea for this book and um, the whole process of what led you to write it. Well, absolutely. I mean, J.D. McDuffie's is really a figure that has consistently sprung up in like every facet of my interest in racing. Um, two of the things that really drew me to the sport were 
the races out here at the Sonoma Raceway outside uh, about an hour from where I live. And also the independents and the underdog drivers that just don't get talked about that often. And certainly when you talk about road courses and you talk about independents, uh, J.D. McDuffie comes up pretty quickly. And uh, I never watched him race. I started actually following the sport in 1991. I didn't actually know about him really until about 2000 when I found a little die-cast car at a Martinez uh, antique shop. And there wasn't a whole lot of information on there on uh, on that. Of course, on the Internet back then, there was a lot of information on anything back then. But um, that really started my process to kind of start digging up some information on that and, you know, looking at things online, certain ter- turn to books and articles. And then eventually by about seven years ago, I got a hold of uh, actual crew members and family members. And it was just going to be like maybe doing some articles for the website like I'd done before. But uh, pretty soon it was so much information. It's like, well, heck, let's let's make this a book. And quite honestly, uh, it kind of it kind of surprised me how quickly it came together at that point, because uh, it felt almost like it was already written. And it just it just came right out and been uh, been very happy with uh, the reception so far. So you spent the weekend up at Watkins Glen, which was the site of J.D.'s last race. Um, you were there signing books. Uh, you had some folks that knew JD, JD in tow with you. So tell us a little about uh, this weekend. It must have been a, a bit emotional for um, for some folks, right? Oh, uh, well, I think for, for everybody in our group, it was it was it was very emotional. And, and uh, again, a big, big thanks to Charlie Birch, the photographer who was standing in turn five uh, at the time that the accident happened. He was a longtime JD supporter. He he hosted us that week, as well as uh, Rob Taylor up in Canada, I hosted myself and my brother, uh, Linda and, uh, Wendy came over to Charlie's house, uh, before that. Um, and, and then of course, yeah, to Linda and Wendy themselves for making the trip up there. And, um, just, it was just tremendous. I mean, that, again, kind of like the book, a lot of that trip just came together. Uh, we were originally just going to do a book signing and then, uh, Charlie offered his house up and then, and then Linda was interested in coming up and it just kind of came together. It, it turned out to be a bit more fast paced than we thought it was going to be because then, uh, uh, some of our media contacts got uh, got wind of us being there, and uh, as well as Charlie's as well up at uh, up at uh, um, at the NBC uh, um, Elmira affiliate up there, and uh, it just turned into just a, a tremendous weekend, and it's really just starting to sink in. Yeah, it sounds like you had a great time. Now, for our our listeners who are not familiar, who uh, Wendy and Linda are, would you just go ahead and fill us in? Those are JD's family members, correct? Oh, correct. Uh, Linda is J.D. McDuffie's daughter, and uh, her uh, spouse is uh, Wendy McDuffie, uh, also uh, in there. And uh, both of them came uh, came along on the trip, made the tr- uh, made the drive straight from Denver all the way up to New York. And uh, Linda was driving that whole time on the way up there, and they uh, they got up, they got there before we ever did. So she's definitely got a lot of her father in her. Uh, so uh, you know, they, they met us up there and, and, um, you know, that was the big thing that we did uh, right away is, uh, you know, like one thing that maybe people have seen on the, my Twitter page there, uh, we had, um, we went to the Watkins Glen track right when, like, you know, before activities really started up there and we went down to turn five and like I say, Linda has never actually been to Watkins Glen at all. She wasn't there when the accident happened. Um, so, and she certainly hadn't been to turn five and, you know, you can only imagine like how emotional it was for her. And, and certainly Charlie and myself were with, with her when, uh, when that happened and we were there to comfort her as well. And, and, um, but really she said it was very cathartic when that happened as well, because I think I'm glad we did that as early as we did, because I think that allowed her to really kind of enjoy the weekend a bit more. And, and these people that came up to her that were, you know, just such huge fans of her father and, and her family. And, and I think that really, you know, that really helped her through the weekend as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now turn five has been totally reconfigured. You know, that bus stop chicane there or the inner loop, as they once called it, uh, that was not there prior to J.D.'s accident in 91. And that that whole thing is there as a, you know, kind of as a reaction to uh, to that accident that J.D. had. So, um that, you know, that 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 I find really interesting, and I remember. I, I know you said you hadn't actually heard of heard of JD or or uh, before you started uh, with your project, and um, or you know before you you know he he came into your project. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, Brock. I'm sorry, but oh, I got um, you. Yeah, yeah. So, but I remember watching that race live 
Um, you know, at, at the time I was, uh, I didn't work on Sundays. I devoted every Sunday to sit in front of the front of television and watching, uh, watching the races. And uh, I just remember seeing that crash and, you know, JD's car flipped up and Jimmy Means' car went under it. Uh, Jimmy looks into the, into the net and immediately starts calling for help. Uh, I mean, it, you could tell it was bad. Uh, so, you know, um, did you get a chance to, you did have a chance to, uh, interview Jimmy Means for the book too, who was pretty good friends with, uh, JD. Correct. Correct. And that was really the, that was really the surprising thing with, with Jimmy and with a number of these other interviewees is that, um, just about everybody I spoke to on this was like, they couldn't wait to tell me as much as, as much stuff that they knew as if nobody else had really talked to him or, or hadn't talked to him in quite a while about this. Uh, I really expected, especially with Jimmy Means, that it was going to be very hard to like extract a lot of information there. But um, I, Jimmy Means called me after I, I tried to reach him by email before. He called me right after he got back from Dale Jr.'s wedding over the winter. And uh, the very first thing he told me is what he saw on August 11th, like right, right off the bat. Like, and we talked for probably an hour after that. So... And that, again, that was very typical from one interview person to the next, regardless of, you know, what they saw or what they experienced. They couldn't wait to share it and make sure that um, they had their story out there. And and that was really to the benefit of the book because I wanted I put as much of that in there as possible. And and the reception we've had so far on that, that people really seem to appreciate that. But I mean. You know, part of it was being able to find these people and, and do the interviews, but a big part of that also was just how forthcoming so many of them were. And, you know, really, like, you, you would get, like, half of one story from somebody and the other half from the other. They fit perfectly, put it in there, and it's like that, that really helped the project a whole lot. I think that just goes to show how J.D.'s story really needed to be told, that folks were so willing to say, yes, please tell this story, you know? It's very true, and 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 I've I've actually gotten some criticism from about the the, the title of the book. There, I say it's a forgotten NASCAR legend. It almost seems kind of like a contradiction because you have some of these people that you know certainly he wasn't forgotten to them, you know, and and they were able to share so much about him and all these 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 really uh, interesting stories. And we had so many more over the weekend. I actually, just did a um, a review of our, our race weekend that I posted on lastcar.info with uh, with other stuff that didn't even make it into the book, um, but. Uh, but really, I mean, I think the, at, the, at the larger part of it, like, you know, they're maybe in the mainstream or maybe on some other net, you know, um, um, you know, the, the mainstream media and everything, too. You know, they they don't really talk about J.D. that much or, or discuss them. And I think that's kind of what we were, you know, where the title is still kind of appropriate. And because there's a lot of people that, you know, that I talked to during the race weekend, you know, some of whom actually they follow the sport pretty closely that you know never even heard of them. And that was that was kind of really startling to me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Seth, I want to bring you into the conversation here. I know uh, that you've got a couple questions for Brock here. I do. Uh, while reading some of the excerpts uh, for your book, uh, I didn't realize that JD had been turned away, or NASCAR officials attempted to turn him away from the track uh, several times, and. Mm-hmm. Was it disconcerting or disheartening for him from what you were able to gather? I mean, I know similar stories, granted, much different situation for Wendell Scott and some other drivers throughout the years. But uh, it's one of those where you almost wouldn't expect something like that to happen. Certainly, certainly. And and I think I think that goes back to what you guys were talking about earlier, that you know, JD just really missed out on the boom of the sport that just happened within the next couple of years. I mean, my goodness, certainly everything after the 1992 season with Richard Petty retiring, everything just went into the stratosphere on that. And um, I think maybe that that was something that was playing a role in, um, in in what was happening there when you have all these big haulers coming in there and NASCAR is trying to put forward this image of having the big money teams with the big sponsors on the side of the haulers and everything. And then they see this other guy come in and, and, you know, a guy that had been in the sport for so many years and maybe he didn't have the assets to get a trailer like that. I mean, he did have one originally, but it just became impractical to use it under, you know, under his, uh, his budget. You know, I think maybe that there was something going on, uh, going on with that at the time, and undoubtedly that 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 bothered him. And actually, you know, I mean, I'm not telling tales out of school on this, because I wrote about this on the website. 
actually, we kind of faced the same problem about that in trying to promote this book at the racetrack. Uh, our original plan was to actually have a book signing at the racetrack, and we had a deal worked out with the Speedway and uh, other folks out there that were interested in it. We even had it all the way down to figuring out you know, where we were going to put the tables at the spot that we had. And then somebody at, at NASCAR stepped in and said, oh, no, we can't do that, you know, and, and, and did all that. And it almost, you know, threw a wrench into everything. And, um, you know, thankfully, the folks at Smalley's Garage, you know, tremendous people down there, um, down at the village of Watkins Glen proper, they picked us up. They only asked for just a couple copies of the book, and they treated us just like family down there. And, you know, it, it worked out perfectly. But, you know, under the circumstances, you know, I, I was talking about this with, with Lynn. Uh, and she said, hey, well, welcome to JD's world. So I can definitely say, you know, certainly in a, in a, in a smaller sense, you know, I definitely understand what uh, what he faced in those situations. Now, going back to him being a privateer, granted, in the Cup Series, we really don't have any privateers anymore. We have a handful in the Xfinity Series, some in the Truck Series. Is there anyone that kind of reminds you of JD that's racing now, whether it's in the Xfinity Series or the Truck Series? You know, that's a good question. And, and uh, you know, actually, I, I, I faced this a little bit when I was uh, looking on Twitter, and Jordan Anderson posted that picture of his uh, truck series ride arriving at... Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Spring training is right around the corner. So come for the games and have a ball in Arizona. With world-class resorts, unbeatable dining and nightlife, amazing scenery, and endless outdoor adventure. Make your visit unforgettable. Plan your getaway at myspringtraining.com. I believe uh, um, Chicagoland a couple weeks ago, and he had uh, he had this 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 smaller truck, this this uh, little trailer like a toy hauler he brought behind his truck, and he had this shot where it was just sitting between these two massive haulers. I think it was like Thor Sport and somebody else's there, and I it reminded me instantly of this shot. I believe I said it was from '88, but I think I found it was from '89 actually. Of the same thing, there was a shot of JD's old blue hauler, this old rollback hauler that looks like you know almost like a flatbed that was parked between these two massive haulers for aj Foyt and um ken schrader and it was exactly like it was framed the same way and everything and that just that just floored me and, and jordan very much you know reminds me of that as well that you know he's worked with mike Harmon, and Harmon is very much a driver that is in that owner driver mold and 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 uh you know he has those ties and i think that's why what's inspired him to you know run things the way that he does and uh, also in that on that uh, same vein in the Xfinity series, certainly Morgan Shepard has to be brought into this discussion. Of course, Shepard being successful with many teams over the years, especially running in Atlanta, um, but continuing on and running, you know, Dave Marcus like many years after his last win, and continuing to run his own operation. Same experience I had at Darlington last September, running into him, and uh, you know, uh, he had his small hauler there himself and his wife, and uh, they were just hanging out and. You know, one of the coolest things was was Shepard just sitting there and you know cracking open a Mellow Yellow and 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 just uh, relaxing there next to his car after he uh, he brought it in and and took the carburetor off of it and you know just so much of a throwback. I mean, again, I never met J- never met JD, but I imagine the experience of walking by Old Blue in the late eighties, early nineties was just like that. And one more question, uh, again, reading the book uh, about how. Sometimes other teams would raise money for JD to get parts and stuff like that. Uh, I, it reminded me of a story from Daytona, I want to say 2010 or 2011 in practice. Jimmy Means' car uh, ended up getting wrecked in an accident with Dale Jr. that he admitted that he had a part of it. And when he found out that they didn't have a backup, he originally tried to loan them one of his cars before NASCAR acts that because they had already presented it as one of his backups. So he personally had a car shipped from his shop here in the Carolinas down to Daytona 
for means to have a car for its driver to race. Uh, and it just reminded me of that story. And it's one of those you don't hear about that often. And ironically, that story in your book that you mentioned, uh, it involves Earnhardt Sr. and Childress. So my question is, do you, is it almost a time that you're not going to see that ever again, whether it's the Xfinity series or the truck series, the way teams are nowadays trying to save every dollar? You know, I, I would hope that there's, you know, there, there's, there's still times where you see that kind of cooperation between, you know, between teams. And um, if, if, if I'm understanding your question correctly, like, I mean, seeing, you mean like seeing another time where maybe like a major funded operation yes. is helping an independent team you mean okay yes. yes i i i would think that that would still i would hope that would still happen i mean the the thing is with that one that is such an exceptional situation on a lot of fronts there because dale jr and um uh jimmy means's son brad uh, they grew up you know for as kids just hanging out at the uh, the haulers there and as you know that's another uh, story that's brought up in the book there too and that connection that they have uh, undoubtedly was it was a big part of that. I think they talked about that on a little bit on their uh, their podcast as well just last week. But um, you know the the um, I mean I I say it's exceptional in that sense because there's that tie between Junior and Means. But I'm hopeful that you know maybe that's not the exception that you know somebody somebody wrecks and or somebody loses a car like that situation and you have a lot of teams pitch in. Um, you know, I, 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 now that I mentioned that one thing that actually does kind of remind me of is back in uh, 2013 in the truck series when uh, Norm Benning wrecked, uh, you know, beat up that truck trying to get that thing into the field in the last chance qualifier, and all those people that were just kind of surrounding his truck and just, you know, just lifting it up and getting it all ready for the race, you know, it wasn't a situation, you know, quite as uh, quite as tremendous as Junior's there where he was actually bringing a whole other car. But certainly, you know, a, a, a huge showing of these 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 uh, you know these teams helping each other there. So, you know, another example that's that's more that's more recent than uh, the Bobby Santos situation there with the backup car. So, you know, hopefully that is a sign that there's a trend with that. I'd like to see it in the Cup Series. It's a shame that you know both of us are talking about things that have happened in the Xfinity Series and the Truck Series here. Uh, you know, I don't suppose we're seeing that as much in Cup, but uh, you know, um, maybe it would maybe it would start happening. I don't know, but. Um, you know, it, and maybe it happens more often than we see it. I mean, that's, you know, when I, when I do my media coverage out at the track, that's why I really try to push to uh, get my credentials through at all these, uh, these tracks there. Cause I, I, I'm anxious to see what's happening really behind the scenes. And, and sometimes it's entirely possible it's happening a lot and it's just not getting seen or talked about. All right. Now, uh, Brock, I want to talk to you a little bit about the process of getting your book to press. Um, you can, mm-hmm. There are a lot of folks out there that feel like they have a story to tell, and and there's a lot more avenues for uh, for an author to, uh, to to get some stuff to press with you know with eBooks and whatnot. You know, you know, getting a, a publisher to be interested in you used to be a daunting process. So, uh, I mean, how difficult was it for you to uh, strike the deal with Waldorf and um, and you know, uh, do you have any advice for any kind of up and coming writer, somebody who? who would like to publish a novel or publish a biography? I do. I mean, the, the re it's, that's a very good question. I mean, the re, cause the, you know, like you said, it's, it's so competitive these days. And when you're publishing books, you're not just competing against other books, you're competing against other forms of entertainment, whether it be uh, YouTube or Netflix or anything else. So you, you really persistence, I would say is the biggest thing that really pays off. And I know that's easier said than done, but um, you know, the more you, you know, the more time you commit to it and the more, uh, you know, the more you're able to uh, push it out there, you know, usually that is going to prevail. Maybe not right away, but but uh, but eventually. I mean, I'll tell you with this book here. Um, you know, there was the first publisher that we approached on this that actually was accepting submissions because that's the first obstacle you got to go over. A lot of publishers that I was approaching, they were only interested in young adult novels and stuff like that. And you know, I'm not writing anything about like vampires or archers or anything like that. So. Um, you know, when you, when you're going against the grain and you're writing something a little different that people, um, people aren't expecting, uh, you, you kind of have to be a bit more creative there. And, um, I approached one publisher about this book that was interested in it. And when they told, when I told them who it was actually about, uh, they didn't, they didn't jump for it. And they said that nobody's going to buy a book about a loser. That was actually their words. And I was thinking, well, okay, if you're going to show that little commitment to, you know, or think this little of this project. I don't want you promoting this book because I know you're not you're not gonna have your heart in it. 
And uh, luckily, um, eventually, I was able to track down Waldorf, uh, who have been absolutely tremendous in this. The great thing, I, I mean, I would say, it's kind of a long answer to this question, but um, for first-time authors, I would highly recommend Waldorf, quite honestly. Um, they, are, they are a small publisher out of Texas. They are very much geared towards like first-time authors and, and, and people trying to get their names out there. Um, they are very dependent on the social media presence of their authors. So if you, you know, if you have that kind of presence or a way to kind of develop it, that's certainly something they look at. I mean, I, I mean, there's there's a lot of other things they look at too. It's it's not a it's not a rubber stamp by any means. They gotta uh, approve you know anything for their catalog and uh, see how it goes. But if you're able to kind of help them out, you know, and and you're able to work with them, you know, they will they will absolutely help you a lot. And and you know, as you can see, they did a very nice job getting the cover illustration together and getting it formatted and all that stuff there. So. You know, again, I, I'm very pleased that Waldorf showed interest in it. They've been very supportive of this project. And, again, for first-time authors out there, I, I, I would recommend them. Okay, fantastic. So uh, I want to ask you one more thing now. Did you, you got a chance to go spend some time in Sanford, North Carolina, little bricklaying town, or, or no? Oh yes, I, I I was I did go to uh, Sanford last September uh, as part of uh, we were covering the race in Darlington that uh, that week, and so that was that was a tremendous trip. We were able to spend about a week down there, and uh, we visited with uh, that's where we visited with Wilbur Thomas and Jimmy Bird, who go way back with JD back to even before NASCAR, and uh, we did interviews with them out there. And um, yeah, Sanford is is uh, is is a really interesting place, and and again another place much like Watkins Glen where you don't have to, you, you say JD and people know who you're talking about. You don't have to explain anything about it. And you know, his, his gravesite out there is, is still regularly visited. Um, when we did the trip out there, there was a, uh, a nine sixteenths wrench, I believe was the size of it. That was in the flower holder. Like there's still people coming out there that, that very much care about him. And that was, and that was before the book was even published at that. So, um, you know, I, I, I hope that in some small way this is, is getting even more attention out there. And, uh, you know, for those of you in the, uh, um, the Raleigh-Durham area, I would, I would, I would recommend checking out, uh, checking out Sanford because there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of people out there in a lot of places that uh, still definitely remember them. All right. Well, fantastic. So let's talk about the race at Watkins Glen this weekend. And you were there for the race. I mean, did you have an opportunity to uh, – just kind of sit and soak it, soak in the race and watch it, uh, or were you too busy with uh, book signings and whatnot? I did. I mean, the book signing, the only book signing we had at the actual uh, weekend was on Saturday night, which was cool because, uh, you know, of course, the significance of Saturday night in uh, 1991 was that was when JD won the uh, celebrity race at uh, the Oigo Speedway. So it was nice to kind of have um, uh, a tie in with that. But yeah, I mean, the Xfinity race, we, we weren't able to stay there too long. We had to get ready for the, um, uh, the signing that evening, but we did see a little bit of the rain uh, racing that weekend and all that too, and that was fun. Um, but the cup race, yeah, we saw the full thing on that. Uh, I was in uh, turn one for that race. My brother was over in turn 10. Uh, we, we got in there like just before they sold out there when my uh, credential request fell through. But, um, <laughs> you know, that was that was a whole other story. But there we, we got that. We got that worked out there. And uh, it was tremendous. I mean, my goodness. I mean, I, I'm used to the races at Sonoma and I've been going there since 92. Watkins Glen is just a whole other ball game huge facility ridiculous speeds going into those corners and um and yeah, it's, it's particularly a, in this it's a one high commitment track yeah it is and and in this one it seemed i mean maybe it maybe just plays different in person than on tv they seemed so much more aggressive out there this time i mean right from the start there you had like the four best guys up front and they were going side by side through the s's and turn five and and then uh, Jimmy Johnson, I know he didn't have, like, the best run there, but in the first part of it, that was one thing I, I noticed lap after lap. He was just knifing that thing into turn one, just getting under this guy, getting under that guy, and getting it up there. And maybe that was one thing that got him, uh, you know, got him looped around there at the other end of the course there towards the end. But he was having uh, – I was really impressed with him. And, and Chase Elliott, I, I was convinced that somebody put Tommy Kendall in that thing at the last second because the, he just put on a master class out there. I mean – Nobody passes Kyle Busch on a road course, and much less, you know, then holds off Martin Truex at the finish. That is insane. So kudos to Chase. I've been hard on him, very critical of him in the past, and, um, you know, uh, in, in many ways I always kind of viewed him as kind of the antithesis of some of the drivers I talk about that are kind of the, 
the ones that don't get talked about that much and, and everything, but he made a believer out of me. I, I take back everything bad I ever said about him. Yeah, this is coming on the heels of the announcement that uh, his dad, Bill, is going to hop in an Xfinity car at Road America coming up. Exactly. Six, oh, my six, gosh. 62 years old. I can't wait to see that. So, But uh, let, me, let me turn my attention to Seth. Um, you're our resident NASCAR analyst since Gray is off on assignment this weekend. So uh, I, I thought the Xfinity race was quite entertaining and the cup race was quite good, too. So uh, what are your what are your takeaways from the weekend at Watkins Glen uh, prior to Monday's legal issues? Well, for the Xfinity race, uh, the only thing I'm disappointed is how long it took them to repair the tire barrier after Vinnie Miller hydroplaned into it in turn one. Uh, as a result, we didn't get to see any real strategy as far as the track drying and team switching to dry tires. By the time they had it fixed, the bulk of the track was dry. Uh, otherwise, the Xfinity Series race was very entertaining. It was interesting to see uh, dry stage, one wet stage, and then back to dry. Uh, the cup race... It was entertaining. Uh, Kyle Busch and Chase Elliott probably had the best cars. Uh, Kyle, on a pit stop, they weren't able to get the car fueled. That dropped him back to about 19th with uh, about 20 laps to go, and he was able to get all the way back up to third. Uh, Denny Hamlin had an atrocious pit stop, uh, almost injured two of his crew members when he uh, ran over an air hose and with the cross both their faces. Oh. Uh Chase Elliott also almost ran over a crew member who uh, went over his hood and landed in, uh, I forget whose pit stall it was, but he made the motion that he was safe and the air gun landed in his hands as he was doing that. So I thought that was kind of funny, but (laughs) overall it it was a good battle to the end between Chase Elliott and Martin Truex Jr. And what impressed me was on the final lap going in, to turn one, Chase was wheel hopping, and he said in the interview afterwards, uh, his choices were to either spin out or pop it into first gear, over rev the engine to keep from spinning out, and that's what let Truex catch all the way back up to him. And Truex had said, even if he got around him or moved him, that he was going to run out of fuel going into turn seven, and that Chase was going to just sweep back by him. So it was just an epic battle between the two drivers. Yeah, it was really good. I, I, I would have thought that Chase's first win would have come at some place like Charlotte or or Chicagoland or something like that. But for him to win at Watkins Glen, that's I – mean, I mean, what a way to kind of put your mark on the series and say, hey, here I am. I, I, you well, know, I, I got that monkey off my back, and I'm ready to go. Well, Chase won at Watkins Glen his first race. His father, Bill – won his first race at Riverside. Uh, and Chase is now just one of four drivers in the Cup Series to earn their first win. Out. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. I walk into Glen, joining Steve Park, Marcus Ambrose, and AJ Allmendinger. Uh, so, and, and those guys went on to win how many Cup championships? No exactly. one won. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Ringers. Ringers. Yep. So, but Chase isn't a ringer. I mean, Ch- Chase is a. You know, he's the future of NASCAR, and uh, at the same time, this is Chevy's second win on the season, where Chevy has been. You know, they won the five hundred. Uh, at the beginning of the season, and we've been talking, and we talk, I, I'm so, you know, kind of uh, well, sad, sad that Gray's not on the show, so we'd be talking about well, Chevy getting better, but, but here's, here's another win for Chevy. Well, the last three weeks, uh, Hendrick Motorsports ex- uh, especially has improved their performance, and ironically, it was five weeks ago that they finally got their own OSS system at their shop. So it's... I'd almost put it on what they've learned uh, from their own OSS system 
is definitely being applied at the track, and that's shown the marked improvement of that team. This was also their 250th win as an organization. In their first 17 years, they had 100 wins. In the most recent 17 years, the team has earned 150 wins. Seth, I'm so glad you know all these numbers. <laughs> I, say, I can, never, I can never keep them all straight. Yeah, you know, like Brock. Brock would tell you how many last places they had. And you could tell me how many wins they have. It's awesome having both you guys on at the same time. So uh, now, Richard, you've been kind of quiet tonight, but uh, you're um, you're well seeped in NASCAR, um, having worked uh, in there for a couple of years. What were your thoughts about Watkins Glen and, and the race, either the Xfinity or the Cup one? Uh, yeah, firstly, watching the Xfinity race, um, yeah, it was disappointing that they, uh, you didn't get to see more of the, uh, action and the driver judgment calls as the track was getting wet and the track was drying. That was, uh, I mean, I appreciate they had to repair the safety barriers there, but we did lose something of a, a of a black art amongst, uh, some of these, um, uh, drivers, you know, some of the more experienced drivers, but uh, I thought it was a fantastic race and, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was great to see. It was surprising, you know, there's quite a few of those cup drivers obviously sort of stepped down for the uh, for the Saturday race to get a bit of experience out there, uh, which was uh, it was good to see. Um, and from you know, Chase Elliott's standpoint, it was good to see him finally get that win. I mean, it was, what, seven, eight second places I think he'd had up to that point. So, fantastic. And, you know, he didn't, it wasn't a fluke win, like, you know, some of the more recent first-time winners have arguably been. You know, he, he dominated that race. He led... 50-odd laps, wasn't it, or 40 laps out of 70, um, or 90, however many the way. He he had a good run there. Uh, I can't remember the exact number. 52 out of 90. Well, yeah, so well over half. So he, you know, he deserved that. And, you know, to hold off Truex at the end there and to to hold off uh, Kyle Busch and to, to race, you know, head-to-head with those guys and, and beat them fair and square, yeah, you know, good on him there. And hopefully that'll give him that little bit of confidence when it comes to some of those other tracks and he can start converting those second places into wins. Yeah, good run. Now, Brock, who finished last? So that was Joey Logano, his first last place finish since the second article I ever wrote back in 2009. <laughs> See, you had that right on the tip of your tongue, man. That's what I love about you, man. So. Oh, thank you. That was a cra- now that was a crazy story, wasn't it? I mean, I'm still trying to pick apart uh, what the heck happened over there. Yeah, like My yeah. brother was... My brother was at turn 10, and he got video of that 22 running off the course, and he, uh, he never actually hit anything. He looked like what, he still had control of it. What happened was in turn uh, 5, he ran into the back of A.J. Allmendinger. It broke the oil cooler and the radiator. So by the time he got to turn 6, he slammed on the brakes, and the car just went straight because of the fluid on the tires. They, oh. He went to pit road, and Todd Gordon immediately said, for him to go to the garage. However, because it was damaged, he was on the damaged vehicle policy. And as soon as he mm-hmm. entered the garage, he was out. The team claimed they didn't know they were on the DVP until they got to the garage. 18 months into this policy, there's no excuse for the team not to know when they are or are not on that policy. Interesting, interesting. Well, yeah. that was an interesting rule situation. I mean, that's... You know, kind of the thing make me. Uh, I mean, I wasn't really listening to the officials' radio at the time that that happened, but I, I'm I'm curious. Is there something that's communicated over the radio where they say, you know, like the 22s on the on the damage clock, or is it just something that you're just they just kind of know? Uh, you got to know it. You got to know it, and they it is communicated to them. It's just by the time it's communicated to them, they're already on the clock, and sometimes they they may have been on the clock for about five seconds. Sometimes it could be about ten or fifteen seconds. It really depends on the track and uh, the situation. Most uh, for, for that five-minute damage clock, most teams will have a automatic timer that's on on the pit box, so they'll have a pretty good idea of uh, where they sit in that five-minute uh, window, and also they'll um, automatically reset when they lap at the pre the predetermined uh, reset lap time is is set prior to the race. Now, here's an interesting question. Actually, thinking about it. Say at Watkins Glen, you have, you know, you've got your five-minute damage window. um, And that window, that five minutes are reset once you achieve a minimum racing speed. Now, what happens if it's raining 
and you can't achieve minimum speed even though your car isn't damaged anymore? It's an interesting question. I guess that we would find out when that situation arises. Yeah. Well, now, that's and that's the interesting thing about that part of it too is that you're you're saying also, Seth, that the the, the it was the damage from running into the back of the forty seven that constituted the the damage that incurred the start of the crash clock. It wasn't the moment that he ran off the course because, of course, he didn't hit anything it, when he ran off the well, course. Well, the thing is, the clock doesn't start until he enters pit road, and this year it's actually a okay. six minute clock, but. Uh, okay. It doesn't start until he enters pit road. So from the time he went off course, which is when they definitely knew they had something wrong with the car, to the time he entered pit road was about a minute to two minutes. In that time, they should have known they were on the DVP. That being said, the damage to the oil cooler, Todd Gordon admitted on the radio Monday morning that they were done for the day. There was nothing they would have been able to do. But at the time, they were arguing with NASCAR that they had not known they were on the policy. Interesting. 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 See, this is this is this is this kind of thing I love about last place finishers. You know, there's always you know there's always some little quirk in the law there, and you see that. And that was something I didn't even know here. So, so kudos to you, Seth. Now, Joey. You've been quiet tonight, so I want to kind of bring you into conversation. You get a chance to watch the Cup cars of the Glen. I did, I did. I uh, I thought it was a good race. Uh, I thought it was interesting, kind of the I don't know another word to use other than maybe stigma of how everything kind of fit together. Because you know you've got that situation with with Chase Elliott who can't win to save his life. Uh, for a long, long time, 99, it took 98 starts on the 99th. He finally got it and turn right around. And who's he trying to fend off? He's trying to fend off a guy who was the other lovable loser of yesteryear who kept digging and kept fighting and kept scrapping and was always at the wrong end of the winds. And here he turns around and, and ends up, you know, fending off Martin Truex Jr. And I thought it was so funny that towards the end of this race, really both of them you could tell were going for it because each one was slipping up in different parts of the track. If it wasn't Chase Elliott slipping up in turn one there, it was Martin Truex, uh, you know, flipping there, uh, or not flipping, but but sliding there through the S's. And I just thought it was it was very interesting uh, to see that, to see also how Chase was through the bus stop. I mean, it just seemed like each one was trying so hard and, and kept digging that it ended up being a really good slug match there at the end. But, uh, you know, and... Kudos to, to Chase on the win, obviously. It was kind of cool to also see the symmetry there with, with him and, and his dad, Bill, having his first win, like what Seth alluded to. But, you know, looking at the fact that at the end of this race, he runs out of fuel, and it's Jimmy Johnson, a seven-time champ, your teammate, who's giving you a pushback to victory lane. So to see that, to see the ovation from the fans and what seemed like it was a really good crowd – and also just see all the drivers come to victory lane and, and give their congratulations to him just shows everything that they that they appreciate about this kid, shows the respect that they give this kid. And I think that I don't know, I, I honestly, I think about this moment and I think about the 98 Daytona 500 in some respects because it reminds me instantly uh, after senior one, all the crew members coming out to pit road and giving their congratulations to senior because they knew how, how long he'd been at this and, and never gotten that win at Daytona. And I look at chase and obviously there's two opposites, two parallels in, in some respects. So with the fact that this kid had been at it for so long, shown the fight and the spirit and finally got that job done and obviously has the respect of his peers. And I just, I thought it was a really cool moment uh, in many respects um, from who he's fending off to, to relate to his dad, to a seven-time champ pushing you to the victory lane. So it's a good good race for him. And uh, I thought it was a great weekend for NASCAR until, well, until Monday. I yeah, so speaking, of, <laughs> so speaking of Monday, who wants, to, who wants to weigh in on that first? Anybody go. Well, here, I'll tell, I'll tell you my side of that. We were we had just finished up on you know everybody's like yeah we're all high fiving each other it's like look we had we had there's a great race to cap this off you know and publishers gonna be all excited about the book and everybody's gonna be talking about like you know the good things about this and we drove up my brother and I were on this trip here we were driving away from Charlie's place up the Finger Lakes stopped at this little cafe at the top of the lake there 
And we were sitting down, opened the phone, and Speed Sport News says that Brian France caught for the DUI with possession of controlled substances. And I'm like, is this the onion? Oh, no, no, this can't be real. No, and then hit the link. It was like, oh, oh, oh. And uh, that was kind of the start of it right there. I was over at the uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, actually, for the IndyCar test at they were having with Firestone and testing the new aero kits. And I asked a couple of other people that were there, you know, is TMZ a credible source for news? And both of them said yes. So I read them the headline, and both of their eyes got very, very large um, when they heard that. So that was uh, my introduction to what happened there. Either way, it's a black eye for NASCAR. Uh, regardless, him taking a leave of absence, having – uh, Jim France's uncle, the brother of Bill France Jr., taking over. It was a black eye not only because he was arrested for DUI and controlled substance. He very clearly was not at the track, as he has claimed to have been over the past two or three years, with multiple drivers calling him out on it, most vocally Brad Keselowski. Uh, because where he got pulled over on Sunday night was a good I think four or five hour drive from the track and after yeah, yeah, he yeah, got pulled yeah. over Long, Long, Island, no Long, Island, to get there. Long Island is nowhere near Watkins Glen. You know, Watkins Glen is closer to the Poconos. You know, and Long Island is way out there in the in the harbor. So uh, you know but, yep. but the long and short of it is like people have been like calling for him to be not in charge of NASCAR for a while now. He's kind of uh made all their wishes come true. So I don't see him coming back in the foreseeable future. Um, what 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 is your thoughts for the future leadership of NASCAR? Well, I'm optimistic about having Jim France in that role because he is the one who negotiated the purchase of ARCA. He's the one who helped negotiate, if I remember correctly, the merger between American Le Mans and Grand Am. And he's also been negotiating a uh, rules package, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, uh, over in Le Mans to help allow teams from the U.S. to compete more easily there. I uh, I can't speak to that last one. Um, well, the LMP2 situation that just got released, though, with the state, the state of the series with IMSA, I mean, they kind of moved the LMP2 to be uh, on a more global platform versus what they were dealing with. So, I mean, there's something something to be said with that, perhaps. Yeah. Um, I tell you this, I, I we could get caught up in the negatives of, of everything that entails with this because obviously it, it is a black guy for the sport. It's a negative for the series in many respects. But, you know, we see in the NFL, like, for instance, Jim Irsay got – you know, pulled over DUI a few years back. I mean, these things, people, I don't want to say people forget and move on, but people, it's, people are willing to forgive and move past. And I think in this situation, there's still a lot of details that we need to learn. I think there's a lot of things still that need to be found out to see if it even makes sense for Brian France to come back and take over back his, his role with NASCAR. But that all aside, I think that, there's a few things that are incredibly important for the leadership in NASCAR moving forward. And that is first and foremost, that that person has NASCAR's best interest. And that includes the people that work within it. And I think, you know, with, from that standpoint, you're looking at a situation where, you know, we see all the time, we hear stories all the time. I mean, about back in the day, uh, Bill France, uh, you know, would sit there and, open open the door to whoever was going to come in and you've got criticisms you've got things you want to, to talk about with it comes to sport ways to improve the sport he would be the first person that you would talk to and, and, and tell everything to and he'd be the first one to take it all in and and figure out what to do and, and kind of move forward with those things and i think that we need more of that and we need definitely somebody that's at the track you know all 36 races 38 non-points races whatever yeah. moving forward you need that because that's going to be what drives everything forward. You know, people people can see BS from a mile away nowadays with the way social media is. And so I think when you run into a situation where you're trying to get all these fans involved in the sport and you're trying to invoke all this passion, well, you know, it starts at the top and it, and it moves its way down just like a waterfall. And I think that 
with this situation, the fans could tell that if, well, if Brian France isn't quite as invested, that passion kind of, you get that, that vibe or that, that synergy and it, and it works its way and filters its way throughout the rest of the field and throughout the rest of the sport. And I think that fans can see that. And I think that's part of the reason why the passion just quite, quite isn't what it was. And maybe we can get it back. I think we can. Uh, but I think it's going to take that kind of leadership moving forward in order to get people reinvested in the sport. I absolutely agree, yeah. That, uh, maybe, yeah. It, yeah. Maybe it's a good thing to have this guy out for a while. You know, I, at the same time, I, I have to think to myself, I mean, you're worth a couple of million dollars. Why can't you pay somebody to drive you around? You know what I mean? It's just, but 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 you see these things happen, and oh well. But that's uh, that's neither here nor there. But uh, we'll just have to see what's next for NASCAR. But let's turn our attention to Formula One for a little bit, Richard. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Sorry. Yes. So we, we've had a lot of uh, a lot of uh, stuff happening in Formula One. Uh, you know, most recently. Danny Ricardo yeah. was uh, leaving Red Bull and going to Renault. Yep, so last Friday they had the uh, synchronized press release uh, saying that Daniel Ricardo is leaving Red Bull and then within 15 minutes uh, Renault announcing that he was going to be uh, partnering Nico Hulkenberg. Now, th- the most interesting thing that I've taken out of all of this is that um, there's been no confirmation about Ricardo's uh, replacement. So, you know, Carlos Sainz has, has been on the Red Bull Young Driver program for a number of years now, come through uh, Toro. So he's, he's on loan to Renault this year um, and from Red Bull. And it's like, well, if he was going to be at Red Bull next year, that would have been the you know, immediate announcement. You know, it'd been, you know, Danny's leaving and, and um, Carlos is, is, is replacing him. But that hasn't happened. So obviously Red Bull are looking at somebody else. You know, who is that? Are they going to promote Pierre Gasly from Torosso? Probably a little bit too soon, I think. They learned that with Danny Kvyat. They, they pushed him a little bit too soon into that role. Um, who else is available that could take that? You know, um, McLaren have been talking about science. Science would be an interesting opportunity at McLaren. But then, you know, who do they get rid of? They've got uh, Stoffel van Dorn there. They've got uh, guys like Lando Norris waiting in the wings. Um, is you know is Alonso a potential uh, replacement for for Ricciardo at Red Bull? Um, you know, with that Honda link, whether he'd want to go back to that situation, I'm sure he'd take the drive if it came, became available to him. So it's very interesting to see how all this pans out. Um, so that was last week, and of course, last couple of days we've had the other uh, wrench in the uh, driver market for next year, in that uh, Lawrence Stroll. Lance Stroll's father has, is heading up the consortium, which has bought out um, Force India. So you're looking at there's going to be a, move, a definite move there with uh, Lance Stroll leaving Williams and going over to, to Force India or whatever they may be called uh, going through next year. I believe one of the issues that they've been negotiating is that if they rename the team to Force Canada or whatever it may be, uh, they lose the um, TV rights from this year. So uh, that's one of the big political things. You, you saw, last time we saw this was when uh, Sauber uh, renamed themselves BMW Sauber powered by Ferrari, which is all very unusual. Uh, but that was purely for the reasons that they wanted to keep the uh, TV prize money. So, so my, my question is this, though. Are, do we know for sure with this, with this situation with Lawrence Stroll that Force India with the new ownership loses the prize money at year's end, or is that still something I don't know. That don't I don't know. know. That's been, I mean, there has been three teams that have opposed it. And I, my understanding is that it would have to be a unanimous decision. Uh, and there's also news today that each team is losing around 20 million pounds, $30 million in prize money due to a drop in Formula One revenue. So, so oh. there's a big hit going on there. And some of these smaller teams that, did not agree to it. I know Williams didn't agree. I uh, believe McLaren, McLaren. McLaren and Renault, I believe. Yeah. You know, they all said, well, no. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's a competitive industry. And you can't, you know, you've got to look after your own staff. You've got to look after your own bills. Um, so I don't blame them too much. It's the politics of how the sport's run, unfortunately. Whether it's right or not, I, you know, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I don't know what the, the long-term aim is there. Now, 
there are certain ways of massaging the um, uh, sort of how what's the word massaging the prize money allocation. I know in the past that some teams have been given an advance on their prize money to get them through to the end of the season. Now it could be that. Uh, and one of the teams that I know that has been given an advance on the prize money in the past is one of the teams that opposed the, um, you know, them getting that money. So maybe they've said, well, look, hey, in the past you've been giving your prize money early, so we're going to give these guys the prize money early, and you don't really have a leg to stand on in your argument that it's not fair. So, um, yeah, that, that could all be happening. But there's obviously, that again opens up the, the driver market. Who's going to stay at Force India? Are... Uh, Mercedes is going to have such an impact there because the, there was, the big room was that uh, Ocon was going to go to Renault to par- partner Hülkenberg, but of course now that Renault seat's taken up, is Ocon going to stay at uh, Force India and Perez be out? And then you know Perez here because he's got a, quite a bit of cash flowing around with Carlos Sims uh, backing the the Mexican second or third richest man in the world. So there's a little bit of money there from Perez. So would he be a potential replacement at Williams and? take some of that money over to Williams. Uh, who knows? It's uh, Yeah, that, that, that's, that's the big thing that, that, that I've been wondering about. Is like, so what, what happens to Williams now? Because they've well, had large, large strolls. Basically propped them up for the last two seasons. Yeah. And this year is the, the end of their Martini sponsorship deal. Yep, yep. So, so, that, so for, that, that money's uh, not coming in. So uh, no, they, they've got to find somebody. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know... Unfortunately, it's a horrible thing to say, but it, it's looking a little bit yeah dicey at Williams. I think um, you know, and and you've seen from the performance this year what happens when you know and again no disrespect to Sergei Sorokin and, and Lance Stroll, but neither of them are top level drivers. You know, um, you you see what happens to the car's performance when you have two drivers that are inexperienced, especially in you know racing, but also especially in in car development. So. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting times there. I, I tell you what, I, I really like a lot of this situation that's played out over the last couple of weeks in Formula One. Though, like when you look at at Daniel Ricciardo deciding not to wait on the drivers' market and allow it to come to him and maybe be the odd man out, you know, understanding that you know, and if I'm in his shoes, I'm looking at how everybody's treating me at Red Bull. Oh yeah, and and it's like you know this doesn't make any sense. You're going to give it to this kid whenever I've got you know six seven wins and I've finished third in the championship twice in the last four years, and you know I feel a little disrespected because you haven't exactly given me a car that's capable of actually winning a championship. You've given me one that can win a few races here and there, but not on a consistent basis. And I think I've made the most of it. Uh, you know, so kudos to him for going to a factory team. And we all believe that. I know Richard, you and I talked, and we feel like Renault's definitely on the up, mm-hmm. and and they're going to continue to be on the up with some of the hirings that they've made. I think it's interesting now to see, you know, like you said, does Carlos Saints is that the choice for Red Bull? You'd like to think so because he matched Verstappen for the most part at Toro Rosso and makes all. But the why hasn't that already been announced? Exactly. Surely it would have been a perfect opportunity to sort of put this whole rumor mill to bed and say, right, it's just a basic swap, you know. Yeah. It would but, have been, but the, so the fact they haven't done that makes me think that they've decided not to, not to pursue that movement. And, uh, I, and, and, I, and I tell you what, I think that it's a mistake for Toto Wolf to let Esteban Ocon go. I think that he, if he doesn't stay within the Mercedes camp, and in this case it would have to be either Force India or Williams at this point, um, if they lose him to a team like Red Bull, there's going to be hell to pay because he's going to make them pay because he is incredibly talented, uh, oh, just like Van Dorn is at, at McLaren. Um, you know, and obviously Lando Norris is pretty touted in his own right, being uh, there with the junior junior seat. But I think that, you know, also looking at this situation with Force India and Williams, if I'm Williams, I know the money hurts, uh, and I don't expect them to approve anything that's going to help how Force India from this point on. But I, I think that, like you had said, two drivers who... Let's be honest. They they're obviously Ed Stroll didn't learn much from from Felipe Massa when it comes to trying to develop a car. Otherwise, this car would be a little bit better. I mean, you got Patty Lowe heading up that program. Patty Lowe, the same Patty Lowe that helped build the Mercedes program right now. I wonder, you know, who out there? Maybe it's Sergio Perez with that money, but considering his longstanding, you know, 
with Force India, maybe he's wanting to take that Red Bull seat and take that money and, and maybe help inject it with the Red Bull seat. That would be interesting. But, you know, all things considered, I like the idea that maybe they can get a driver that's more suitable to help build that thing up, you know, um, moving forward. So, I mean, we'll see. There's a lot of dominoes still left to fall. The big one's obviously Alonzo. Could he be the Red Bull man? Could he be the IndyCar guy? You know, there's a, there's, there's a wide range for him. Uh, he's the one I, guy that can do whatever it, he wants. It makes me think. It makes me wonder, you know, because as I say, remember what, around the time of Indy, you know, and of course, of course, you know, that's when all the, the you know, uh, IndyCar gets all this publicity, but there's a lot of talk of Alonso around IndyCar, and everybody was saying the deal had been done. But it's gone very, very, very quiet these last few weeks and months. And I'm wondering if, you know, because the drivers talk to each other. Yeah. You know, I wonder if Alonso doesn't didn't know that this Red Bull seat was going to become available for 2019 and just say, I'm just going to just just take my time a little bit here. Um, I mean, it's all affiliated with Renault. It's just got that badging. So well, yeah. Until next. I year. mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I, I'll say this though: the one guy that we're forgetting about, uh, and I don't think he's in line for the Red Bull seat. But I think it's interesting to see where everything aligns and what we're, what we are forgetting is Kevin Magnussen's seat is pretty safe at Haas. I mean, clearly he's driven extraordinarily well this year. But I yeah. think Roman Grosjean is the guy that's in question, and it makes me wonder. You know, if we see him go by the wayside, might we see Sergio Perez, a North American driver? Uh, you know, try his hand at, with a with a North American team. I, you know, yeah. perhaps and help infuse. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of dominoes still. I don't think that uh, Mr. Ferrucci is going to be getting that seat anytime soon, is it? I don't believe so. No, <laughs> I, I think I think he'd be lucky to get an IndyCar seat right now. Yeah, honestly, I, I, that that was a pretty uh, that was a pretty bad mistake, and I think that. You know, hopefully he'll learn from it and move forward and get. Hopefully somebody will give him another opportunity because the talent he's clearly talented, clearly fast, and we've seen just fast guys lose their head. Uh, emotion is part of the sport; it's a part of any sport. Um, and he's young. I mean, we've all we've all been. I, I mean, I was an athlete in my younger days, and I was certainly a guy that would talk and, and say a bunch of stuff. And I think a lot of people are the same way. So um, you know, it's something to learn from moving forward. But I think that he'll certainly get an opportunity somewhere. Just don't know where. All right, and we don't know where, but guys, we are up against the clock. We got about a minute left. But I want now, Chris, you were at the uh, Road America this weekend for the IMSA race. I just want you to give us a real quick thirty-second uh, overview of that before we go off the air. And I'm sorry that we're uh, we're up against the clock. So, Chris, floor is yours. Really, it was all about heartbreak. Um, Jordan Taylor was going to win the race for. Uh, Went to the racing, but unfortunately, his fuel didn't last. He had to stop. Then Mazda Team Yos looked like they were going to win the race, and then they had to stop with a couple of laps to go. And Ray Hall and Atlanta gave him a look at they were going to win in GTLM, but they didn't even make it to the pit lane because it's all uphill. Um, so it ended up being Colin Braun winning uh, his second race in a row. Um, and in GTLM, the 67 for GT1 over there. And Wright Motorsports finally got their first win of the season with Christina Nielsen and Patrick Long, which was great for them because the last race for the series at Lime Rock, they had a bad left rear tire that caused them to drop from second to last in, in their class in the last 30 minutes of the race. Um, the kink took no prisoners this weekend. There were at least four major accidents there. Thankfully, all drivers were okay. And uh, I'd like to make a quick proposition that we get Road America to be a six-hour race in the next couple of years because two hours and 40 minutes is not nearly enough for that great track. Okay, very fast thing. So um, NASCAR is where next weekend? Michigan? Yep. Correct? Okay. Everybody has yep. about one second to make a pick. Brock, you're first. Uh, Truex. Okay, and who's last? Uh, Kislowski. Oh, man. Killing me, Smalls. <laughs> Seth. Uh, I'm going to go with Kyle Busch. All right, Chris. Larson. Joey. Suarez. Richard. Blaney. All right, I'll go with uh, Denny Hamlin. Why not? But, guys, we are out of time, man. I'm, I'm so... Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. We, we could have gone another 30 minutes with this show. Uh, great panel tonight. Brock, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, guys, uh, get on 
info. Um, get some information about that book. Uh, JD is the title of the book. JD, the life and death of a forgotten NASCAR legend. It's a great read. You will enjoy it. Seth, thanks for coming on. Christopher, Joey, Richard, I appreciate all you guys every week. But uh, I want to thank uh, iHeartRadio. I want to thank the Hoobazoo Radio Network. And I want to thank all you folks that listen to us every week. Have a good night. Talk to you next week. W-H-O-O-B-A-Z-O-O-S-U-B-Z-O-C-O-M W-H-O-O-B-A-Z-O-O-S-U-B-Z-O-C-O-M Enter website, enter website, enter website.